Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Oh, well, good morning, friends. How are you doing today? If you, I love it. If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are watching online, wrapped in blankets, drinking hot chocolate, then that sounds wonderful. Um, but you guys here, you're my favorites. Uh, <laughs> way to go. I woke up this morning to eight inches of snow in the backyard and two inches of snow in the front yard. My only explanation for that is Colorado. It's like eight inches plus two inches equals Colorado. I don't, I don't even know how that happens uh, within that small area. But what a great day to wake up on. Beautiful white covering everywhere as we continue uh, with this sermon series that we've been, we've been walking through the Sermon on the mountain, just when you think you might get a break, uh, you realize that at this point there, there is not a break. I'm going to get myself a t-shirt made that says, I survived the Sermon on the Mount Gauntlet 2023, because we got anger and murder like two weeks ago. We got lust and adultery uh, last week, and I actually had this moment when I looked around, I was like, maybe it's not the snow. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's the lust conversation from last week. If you didn't watch it, go, go back and, and check it out. And now we get, we get to talk about divorce. Uh, don't let the, the bumper video mislead you. We're going to save oaths uh, for next week. Uh, we're going to land in Jesus' difficult teaching this week. And, and just something to know in the midst of that, that this is a conversation that for a lot of people is a painful, difficult thing. You might be here, you might have been through divorce. You might be here and you might have had divorce forced upon you. You might be here and you might be a child whose parents went through divorce. You might be here and divorce has affected you in some way and it still is there. You might be someone who has had this verse today taken and beaten over the head, your head and it was done by people who weren't there in the situation with you. Uh, that were just on the sidelines. Uh, and so every time this comes up, there's this moment of like, ouch, like what, what is this going to be? So, so, so just know this beautiful narrative that we get within scripture outside of this verse. Uh, we worship the God who encountered a woman by a well when nobody else was around. And the story is that she's had five husbands and the woman that she's, the man that she's with is now not her husband. And Jesus, this beautiful Jesus that we follow, uh, treats her with love and with grace and brings new stories out of the old stories. And so as we come into this, remember uh, that Jesus doesn't, it seems, bring shame. He sometimes brings conviction, often brings conviction, often brings challenge, but never shame. And he constantly brings new stories where there are old and dead stories. Uh, as we have investigated throughout this sermon, one of the things I've, I've said over and over again is this. Jesus invites us to experience a, a transformed heart. You, you might even say Jesus invites us to experience a transformed heart followed by transformed actions. Everything he invites you into and invites me into during this sermon is not doable by yourself. In actual fact, so much so that for a whole period of church history, the view on the Sermon on the Mount was, yeah, you don't need to do this. This is just to show you how awful human beings are, how impossible the standard is, uh, and you should just be thankful that God is gracious. Now, that, that's not the, the viewpoint we take. We, we believe this, that, that God transforms hearts 
and then leads us into new obedience in the way uh, of Jesus. He's constantly in this gravitational pull, gravitational way, pulling people towards himself. And and as you get closer, the magic of transformation continues to to happen. The the idea is this, that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, his, his concern is you and me. It's this beautiful invite to human flourishing. Jonathan Pennington says this, that the Sermon on the Mount is a guide to human flourishing. It's a belief that we have that that Jesus knows the best way for us to live, and he constantly invites us into it. So while here grace, when we approach this difficult subject, also here this idea that Jesus knows the best way for us to live. Last week we wrestled with uh, Jesus' commentary on this verse in Exodus chapter 20, you shall not commit adultery, and unpacked how it was really a a conversation, yes, around uh, an action, around a relationship with someone outside of marriage, but also a recognition that even the way that you think about people in your mind is actually uh, potentially toxic, potentially damaging, dehumanizing to both them and to you, it's this kind of tension between this moment when attraction to someone becomes, I wonder what it would be like, lust, this contemplation of a different life with a different person, and now as we turn the page, yes, Jesus is going to talk about divorce, and because it's such a broad subject, because there's so much to say, the invite is uh, that we have a sermon, we have a podcast, Aaron and I, we are as happy about the podcast uh, as we look in that photo, uh, which is very happy, um, and, and it's just a joy to just have that wider conversation. So if you haven't jumped in, if you have questions, this is a great space to ask those questions. We got no questions about lust, only smart comments from a particular group of people, but if you would like to ask questions, this is it. Uh, Jesus is going to talk about divorce. I'm gonna read that passage one more time. Uh, but first, for a few moments, I'd love us to talk about marriage. This is what Jesus says uh, in chapter five, verse 31 of Matthew. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I have this thesis about marriage that because it's so difficult, because human relationships are general in difficult, but are difficult, but, but I would argue that potentially marriage is, is the most difficult of them, that marriage is the one relationship of which scripture and the voice of God in scripture himself says, you are one flesh together. I have this thesis that a flourishing marriage is a wonderful witness to a watching world. A flourishing marriage is a wonderful witness to a watching world. When the the world outside the church sees Christians living into something that they know is difficult and challenging, there's something about that relationship that says, "Ah, I want something of that, that says something, that means something. But marriage is, and always has been, complicated. We get together with someone and we make a series of vows, of promises that we go into with so much good intention. Some of those vows over years have been controversial. Perhaps some of you in the room promise to obey something that most brides choose not to do. Now, in the earliest marriage service in England, this was a promise. The bride promised to be bonny and buxom in bed and at board. 
I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds like something someone wouldn't promise today. Uh, we promise complicated things, and yet we know this, 50% of marriages end in divorce. Most people who get divorced cite daily arguments as the reason. 70 to 80% of divorces are initiated by women. That doesn't mean that they're the responsibility of women or that they're, the co that they're caused by women. But somewhere, 70 to 80% of the time, a woman says, I just, I can't keep doing this for whatever reason. Second marriages, the divorce rate increases to 60%. Third marriages, the divorce rate increases to 70%. It's like the more you do it, the easier it is to say, I can't. I can't keep doing this anymore. So, so much so is this known that, that in the wonderful movie, Mrs. Doubtfire, there's this great little interchange where one of the characters says marriage can be such a blessing and the other says so can divorce. There's this recognition that marriage is an incredibly difficult thing to enter into. The uh, writer Joyce Brothers said this, my husband and I have never considered divorce. Murder sometimes, <laughs> but never divorce. Murder sometimes, but never divorce. And yet, even though those are the statistics, in all of the 20 odd years I've spent now doing pastoral counseling, never once have I sat with a couple going through premarital where the one said, you know, my goal is in entering into this, is to make the other person as miserable as possible. I'm going to try and make their life a living hell. I'm going to try and destroy their self-confidence and their hopes for the future. I'm going to put myself through those awful situations. I'm gonna create an environment that causes problems for all of the people. No one goes into it like that. That just isn't a reality, and yet somewhere, something seems to happen. Somewhere, the thing that we're trying to get to can feel out of reach. Apparently, this is a rumor, apparently, there is a desk at Salzburg Airport. It is designed entirely for people that wanted to go to Australia but actually ended up in Austria by mistake. Now, I'm sure this is one of those urban legends that you find isn't actually true, but it's too good to research and find out whether it's true or, or not. If you're having a bad day, just remember that the Salzburg airport has a counter for people who flew to Austria instead of Australia. Sorry, this is Austria, not Australia. Need help, please press the button. Now, my love for Austria, having been there, is so great, and I haven't been to Australia. My love for Austria is so great, I would say happy accident. It is a beautiful part of the world, maybe you're suitcase case though, what you have in it wouldn't be suited to Austria when you were planning on a beach in Australia. But, but this going to the wrong destination or ending up in the wrong destination is a real thing that happens all the time. There is Sydney, Maine, and there is Sydney, Australia, and the airport codes are just like they're the same letters, just backwards, which seems unfair. I think there's this idea that we sometimes we go traveling and we end up in the wrong place. And some of us maybe feel like that in the midst of marriage. We end up in this place where we're like, how, how did we get here? Because this didn't seem like the destination. But I actually wonder if the problem isn't that we got to the wrong destination, but we were just oversold the destination or we were sold the wrong thing about the destination. My wife and I went to honeymoon in Kefalonia. We were sold this beautiful island paradise 
And when we got there, what we found was a small self-catering chalet. There was no double bed in the room that we could stay in, and the only other room had a sink that didn't work. There was nothing to cook with, even though it specifically said self-catering. And so we spent the whole of our first 10 days of our honeymoon just trying to figure out, like, what is going on in this place? It was a destination that was sold as this beautiful thing, and I wonder whether somewhat uh, that's the truth of marriage as well. We've been told it's this easy thing uh, to, to deal with, and perhaps maybe Hallmark movies uh, have told us more about marriage than scripture has. <laughs> Sometimes it's possible that we end up in the wrong place because what has told us the most about marriage is not scripture, is not what, what, what God says marriage will be, it's actually romantic comedies, it's hallmark movies, all those different things. No wonder we end up in what feels like the wrong destination when our source material is based there. And then there's the possibility that we just call the whole thing off. Elizabeth Gilbert, in her book, uh, Eat, Pray, Love, acknowledges this. The only thing more unthinkable than leaving was staying. The only thing more impossible than staying was leaving. I didn't want to destroy anything or anybody. I just wanted to slip quietly out the back door without causing any fuss or consequences. And then not stop running until I reached Greenland. There's this idea that eventually, if, if marriage is as impossible as people can make it sound, then no wonder we take the outside world's option, or easy option, to something else. The band MGMT, in their song Time to Pretend, have these lyrics. I'm feeling rough, I'm feeling raw, I'm in the prime of my life. Let's make some music, make some money, find some models for wives. The models will have children, we'll get a divorce, we'll find some more models, everything must run its course. There's this, there's this sense of like, well, well, why not just take a different route? Why not just go the easy way? What does Jesus say about divorce and how do we wrestle with this passage that we've been given today? Matthew chapter five, verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Couple of really detailed things going on here that we'll try and unpack. When Jesus references a certificate of divorce, he's recognizing a Jewish practice that anybody who divorced their wife would give her what was called a get. It was a certificate that said, you are free from obligation to anybody else. It would mean that a woman who in the first century had no way of providing for herself would be able to go and remarry. She would have an option perhaps to go back to her father's house, but what if he wasn't alive? What, what if there was no other option? Often in the ancient world, in the first century and before, the option that was available if you couldn't get remarried was to turn to prostitution or something like that. This Jewish system of offering a certificate of divorce enabled a woman to remarry if the relationship became broken. It was actually a fairly gracious thing. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus takes a really high view of marriage and therefore a really strong view of divorce. He, he says that the only way in this text that you are able to get remarried is if one of you broke the relationship by having an affair. That gives a solid in his mind reason. 
But this text is a very complicated one, and Jesus is actually using a whole bunch of language that to us coming into it as first century people, we may miss a bunch of things, and, and it may lead us to drawing the wrong conclusions. In actual fact, this teaching is so short that we actually need help from other places in Matthew where Jesus expounds this very issue. So if you have a text in front of you, flick over to Matthew chapter 19, and we'll read from verse one. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now to us reading in the first century, this probably seems like just a really simple question. It's a bunch of people coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, when people get divorced, when is it allowed? When is it sanctioned by scripture and therefore sanctioned by God? But there's this piece to reading scripture that for us people living in the 21st century, if we miss it, we miss so much of what it's trying to tell us. Because the, the writers of scripture and Jesus himself live in a different society, they live in what's called a high context society. Jesus is speaking to a high context society. What, what does that mean? Jesus lives in a world where when you make a reference to something, there's no obligation on the speaker to give you all of the background details. The background details are assumed. This is a first century Jewish culture where every Jewish male would have memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers by the time they were 13 years old. How many of you have Genesis down? Anyone? Come on, keep working. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all memorized by the age of 13. That meant that when a rabbi spoke and made a comment, almost everybody was tracking immediately. They were on board with what he was saying. They were like, oh yeah, I pick up that reference. Imagine a culture where everybody is into the same thing, has the same background, has the same history that they have memorized. And now think about our culture today. Our culture that has all of these different interests, all of these different variables, you do different things. We have people here who develop software for computers. We have people here that work in counseling settings. We have people here that dig ditches. We have people here that do lawyer stuff, whatever that is. There's, there's all of these different things. We have all of these different experiences. And so we live in what's called a low culture society. And what we need is every time anyone speaks, we need to give them, they need them to give us all of the background details to make sure we're on the same page. There is this battle between a high context society on one hand where Jesus lives and a low context society where you and I live. We miss references all the time. Perhaps I can just throw out a few references and we'll, we'll get a spread of the room to see who gets what. No soup for you. <laughs> Raise your hand. Yes, no. Mixture, this is the beautiful Seinfeld moment, the soup kitchen, they're having the conversation about soup. Uh, but it's a spread, right? Maybe 50-50 in the room to boldly go where no one has gone before. Raise a hand if you got that one. Absolutely spoken beautifully by the best Star Trek captain, Jean-Luc Picard. How about this one? 
I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Anybody? Oh man, not many. The brilliantly written Casa Blanca, the moment that they walk off into the sunset. Four score and seven years ago. Look at you, good Americans. The Gettysburg Address, and used in a sermon not long ago by Aaron, I believe. So, you know, you should have got it just for that reason alone. Can you catch the spread in just a few things that some of you would have said everybody should have known every single one of these, and yet some of you would say, I didn't catch any of them. I got maybe one of them. That's what happens in a low context society. We don't pick up on all of those cues. Jesus teaches and lives in a society where when he says a particular phrase, everybody says, oh, yeah, I'm tracking with that. When Jesus is asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, he speaks into one of the hot political or religious debates of his day. This phrase, more ink has been spilt over this phrase in this period than almost any other phrase in scripture. It is the big rabbinical talking point. And it itself is a reference back to another piece of scripture, if you can handle a third one. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse one to two. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Now, just something to note here. We're gonna do some work around this Deuteronomy passage, but in the first century, this passage had been treated like a command. But just for a second, read what is said there. Does anything there sound like a command? It's not a command, it's a case study. And we've had for years an axiom of law that says this, that that hard cases make bad law. This isn't a command anywhere, this is a case study. Imagine this scenario is what the writer of Deuteronomy is essentially saying. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his home and he goes on to explain the rest of the case. That, that, That phrase there that we translate something indecent is a Jewish phrase, evah debah, evah debah. And yes, something indecent is an okay translation for English. But these two guys back in the generation before Jesus worked this phrase to death. This is one of the most famous rabbis of the day. His name is Hillel. He formed a school that would become known as Bet Hillel, named after himself. They were okay doing those things in that day. You now, it's hard to name stuff after yourself. It sounds a little arrogant, but they were okay with it. There's Bet Hillel, the school of Hillel, and this is Shammai. So he formed a school, Bet Shammai. These two rabbis went back and forth on almost every single issue. Generally, Hillel has a more liberal position on almost everything. And by liberal, I simply mean soft reading. And then Shammai, he has a hard reading on almost everything. 
And now here's just a little fascinating quirk of their personalities. Shammai has this really hard reading of almost everything, but the story says he was like the nicest, sweetest guy in the world. He was just an absolute gem to everybody, even though he took the law and made it inescapable. He made it super difficult to, 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 to get around almost anything. Everything was very rigid with Shammai. Hillel and Shammai, they had students. People kept writing these different laws. These guys actually got on pretty well, but their schools didn't necessarily get on pretty well. And so they took this phrase and they worked it to the death to ask, well, what does that something indecent mean? When it says there's something indecent and they read it as a law, what, what, what allows the moment where a marriage can be broken? And there's some different options. Was it any indecency, any uncleanness, any blemish, or was it something as specific as adultery? And Shammai lands in this place where he says, no, this passage is talking about unfaithfulness. And that's it. That's the only thing. That's the only reason that a man can say, I want to divorce you. Or actually in this culture, a man can say, no, we're having a divorce. So this is Shammai. Hillel comes along and he says, no, 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 it's far more broad than that. You can't reduce it to that one thing. Hillel says this, this is so broad that actually, if she burns your cooking, if she burns the dish, that comes under the category something indecent. For any reason, essentially, is what Hillel said in the generation before Jesus. So when some Pharisees come to Jesus in around this point, 30 AD, and they say to him, can a man divorce a woman for any and every reason. Everybody listening goes, oh, he's asking him the question. He's asking him the thing we've been trying to figure out for about 40 or 50 years. And the question is, which side, Jesus, are you going to land on? So hopefully you can see that there's this back piece to this story that is more complicated than just, Jesus, when can people get divorced? There's this debate that Jesus and the Pharisees are having. And then there's the debate behind the debate between Shammai and Hillel. And then there's the scripture behind the debate behind the debate. And then there's the problem behind the scripture behind the debate behind the debate. And the problem is this. Back when Deuteronomy was written, if a woman was divorced, then she had no way of providing for herself. And so everything you read in Deuteronomy there is designed to help make sure that isn't the kind of society we are, that when someone goes through a breakup, there's something, something there to care for them. There's this nuance behind this text that is complicated, historical, and we do best to try and get just a little bit out of it. So when we say, looking at this text, what is Jesus saying about divorce? Well, the answer, of course, is complicated. Is Jesus saying that you can only have a divorce if someone is unfaithful? Or is he simply asking, answering a question that in this case study, does it have to be an adulterous situation or can it be for any and every reason? And all we can say from what we've read is this, that on that, in that situation, Jesus says no, divorce is a serious thing. And in this specific environment, no, 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 it has to be something like adultery. In this specific question, to answer this specific question. 
The problem with taking a passage like this and saying that this is a moment where Jesus says adultery can only, uh, the divorce can only happen after adultery is that Exodus and other books like it specifically say something different. In Exodus 21, we read, actually maybe that's a little further on, we'll come back to that. Craig Blomberg notes this, divorce and remarriage were universally permitted and often mandatory following adultery. We probably picture the first century as being this culture where people were really reticent to go through divorce. In actual fact, it happened all the time. It was actually what might be called an easy divorce culture. It was different to that. And so Jesus' answer here is not specifically to say that no divorce is not allowed in any setting other than under adultery. He answers a specific question. But he does note this. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female, he said. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is intentionally, yes, answering the question to a degree, but making sure that everything is brought back to this beginning ideal of what marriage was supposed to look like. He recognizes in the beginning, God made them not to be two anymore, but now to be one. He recognizes this beautiful sanctity of the thing that was entered into. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The Pharisees, of course, being who they are, have a follow-up question. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus enters into their debate, answers this specific question while beautifully reminding us that the central idea of marriage is not there, it's back in Genesis. I love this little interchange that comes up with his disciples right afterwards because they throw in this little idea like, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, if this is the strict view of marriage, isn't it better not to marry fully, it seems, expecting Jesus to say, no, of course it's better to marry. Everybody gets married, but, but he doesn't. He says, yeah, sometimes actually don't do it. Sometimes you're better off just not getting married. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For a first century person to imagine not getting married was a completely foreign concept. Everybody got married. Is Jesus saying that adultery is the only way that a marriage can be broken? The problem with that is Exodus 21. In Exodus 21, we read this. If a man, he, selects someone for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is free to go without any payment of money. When we read a text like that, the question becomes, is Jesus providing a less gracious society for his followers than the Old Testament did for the people that first read it? 
When we read a text like this, we have to ask a question that when the Old Testament made a provision to make sure that a woman wasn't trapped in a marriage where she was no longer cared for, or in, by extension, anyone is trapped in a marriage where they're no longer can, cared for, when the Old Testament made a provision like that, is Jesus really creating a society where that's no longer in existence? where someone who's going through an abusive situation might find themselves trapped, as the New Testament has been used to argue. It's a question that people have argued back and forth for ages. No wonder that one of the best scholars on marriage that I read as I was investigating this whole thing, no no wonder he said that it has to be a case-by-case situation. Surely it's just so complex that to, to blanket statement, no, it's only for adultery. Surely that just doesn't seem to be in line with what Jesus says. And I would say this, based on what I've read here, that I don't believe Jesus' command in this verse that we're reading today removes this provision in Exodus. That every time I encounter a situation where someone says I'm being abused, I've always landed on this space where I've said then I feel in that situation, you're free to leave. And yet I admit that it's deeply complicated. But I love that Exodus provides this care for people in a situation that becomes abusive. I don't think I've ever said this in a sermon before, but I feel like there's some disclarity in all of this. And so to help us, I'm gonna suggest that we turn to Paul, who very rarely makes everything clearer and often makes things more complicated. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says this, to the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from a husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. Verse 12, to the rest, I say this, it's not clear who the rest now are because it seems like he's still talking to married people. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And then one more piece of advice. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So let's go back to the top for a second and just look at these three different groups. Paul gives this general provision that within the church, marriage should be for life, that it should be permanent, that people should stay together as much as possible. But then he moves on to talk about perhaps a separate situation where someone might be married to someone who is not a believer. And Paul says, be willing to live with them He must not divorce her, and if the woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. But then he goes on to explain in the final verses, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. God has called us to live in peace. If Jesus' command that Paul is well aware of says that that adultery is the only reason for divorce, then Paul seems to have missed what Jesus is saying. 
Because Paul describes a situation where someone is married to someone who doesn't share their faith and that person wants to leave. Paul says, let them go. Let them go and then know that you are free. You are no longer bound. The marriage union in Paul's mind is broken. Again, complicated, right? There's all of these different scenarios that are painted for them and they all seem to speak to specific circumstances. But Paul does do something beautiful here for us. When Paul brings up this idea that perhaps our marriage is about more than just us, I think he offers us a beautiful gift. He reminds us that there isn't just two people in this thing. There's more than two people. And aren't we aware of that so often? How many of you have heard about a couple perhaps that have become divorced? And in the midst of that, the children, when they're asked about it, perhaps there's some sadness, perhaps there's some brokenness, but there's also like this sigh of relief of like, at least it's not like constant arguing and back and forth anymore. Speaks to some of what Paul talks about in this word peace that he uses. Perhaps you've seen moments where you've seen a marriage reconciled, where you've seen two people that have been in a broken union come back together and God works this beautiful healing. And perhaps you've seen that as this beautiful witness to all the people around it and they've seen something else at work. Paul brings up this idea that this just isn't simply about you and I or the person, the two people that are married. It's broad, it's, it's connected to the whole world. As we try and like land on this idea of where Jesus lands with the subject of divorce, I would say that Jesus beautifully focuses on where you began, not where you are. And I think that's where his invitation is for us today. By landing in this place in Genesis chapter uh, one, where it says that so they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He, he reminds us that that really is the beginning point. Jesus sets up an ideal of marriage that's permanent, monogamous, heterosexual, and it's covenantal. It ties two people together, and that matters. Jesus takes marriage and he takes it deeply serious and he recognizes the trauma that happens when a marriage is broken. I love this passage from Captain Corelli's Mandolin that I read at almost every wedding I get to do. Love is a temporary madness. It erupts like volcanoes, then subsides. And when it subsides, you have to make a decision. You have to work out whether your root was so entwined together that it's inconceivable that you should ever part because this is what love is. Love is not breathlessness, it's not excitement, it's not the promulgation of promises of eternal passion. That is just being in love, which any fool can do. Love itself is what is left over when being in love is burnt away. And this is both an art and a fortunate accident. Those that truly love have roots that grow towards each other underground. And when all the pretty blossoms have fallen from their branches, they find that they are one tree and not two. There's this beautiful recognition that marriage is this coming together of two people and, and growing together and whatever stage that's in, when there's a tearing apart, there's going to be trauma, there's going to be brokenness. Perhaps the heartache of divorce and God's heartache for divorce is this. It's a place that was supposed to be light and life and is reduced to something dark and broken. And when it happens, it's a heartache and it's a tragedy. 
And what does this beautiful Jesus do in the midst of heartache and tragedy? He regularly walks into it and does what he always does. He brings his grace. And so when we sum up what Jesus' attitude is towards divorce, I feel like if we lose this piece, we lose everything about who he is. Uh, What I would say is this. For the past, what there always is, is grace. For the past, there is always grace. For the unions that have ruptured, that have broken. For the heartache of each person. For the brokenness in a situation that was supposed to be light and has become this place of darkness. Jesus, as he does for a woman at the well 2,000 years ago, walks into a situation and he brings his light, he brings his grace, he brings his forgiveness, he brings his mercy, he brings healing of trauma, he brings care for the people involved. But I think what he also asks of us is this, is that we believe that yes, for the past, there is grace, but for the now, there is grace and something else. With Jesus, there's always grace. But for the now, there's grace and there's hope. And there's hope. What you see Jesus do time and time again is to walk into situations that are not closed, that are not yet finished, and he brings something to them that is transformative. And when you extend that to Paul as well, Richard Hayes says this, Paul's view of marriage, even marriage to an unbeliever, it's always hope-filled. It's always what could be. And in the midst of those times that are difficult, in those midst of those times where it feels like there's no future, in the midst of those times when we're lost in a whole bunch of verses describing different situations, trying to understand God of the universe, what do you say in the midst of this? I believe that in the midst of those, Jesus invites us to stay. But he doesn't just invite you and your husband or wife to stay. He doesn't just invite me and my wife to stay. He doesn't just invite the couple struggling to stay. In the midst of that, let us remember that Jesus brings his whole whole argument back to Genesis chapter one. He brings it back to not only the beginning, but also to your beginning. To that moment when you stood up with someone and you made a covenant and you made a promise and you said, this is what we're entering into together. And in the midst of that, beautifully what we believe as followers of Jesus is that the God of the universe was present in that, saw that and said, I am with you in that. I am for you in that. And so when he invites you to stay, he doesn't just invite you to stay. In this beautiful, complex way, he invites the three of you to stay. He invites to stay with you in the midst of the brokenness of that, in the midst of the challenge of that. He says, I am with you and I am for you in the difficulty of this and in the hardship of this. I'm gonna invite Aaron to come back up and he's gonna lead us in a final song. I'm gonna end here. If a flourishing marriage is a wonderful witness to a watching world, I would suggest that a restored and restored marriage is equally a wonderful witness to a watching world. That somewhere God created these unions and he blessed these unions and he brings grace to what is ended and what is past. And in the midst of our present struggle and hardship, he says, I am with you and I am for you.
and he invites you to stay. And so as we close, I'm gonna invite Aaron to sing. And we're gonna just focus on the hardship that we experience in marriage at times. We're gonna focus on the hardship that we experience in loss and divorce. We're just gonna focus and acknowledge and grieve for a moment the ways that we've seen divorce as this thing that has caused hurt, caused pain, caused trauma. And sometimes our goal in the church is simply this, we're gonna move on. We're just gonna pretend it didn't happen. We're just gonna pretend it's not in our midst. And that doesn't seem to be the way of Jesus either. So I'm gonna invite you to stand. And Aaron's gonna lead us as we close in a song called Weep With Me. It's this song of reflection, this song of pause, this song that acknowledges the many ways that we experience brokenness in this life. And if you've been through this struggle of divorce, if you're in the midst of it, if you're in the place of saying, I don't know how this works, in the midst of saying, I, you don't know how much I've been hurt, how much this thing was forced on me, how much hardship this has caused. I'm just gonna invite you if you'd like to be prayed for. There's a team down here that would love to pray for you. But also in the midst of this song, there are these beautiful words that describes that God in his beauty in the midst of our struggle doesn't just tell us it's all gonna be okay, doesn't just fix the problem. He comes alongside and he's able to weep with us in the midst of our brokenness. So if that's your place today, that's an old clay place to be. God of the universe, you see us. You created this beautiful gift called marriage. And then you see the ways like so much of your world that it becomes this place of light, becomes this place of darkness, of broken dreams, of hurt, of pain. You see your children that went into it with all of these beliefs and this sense of what it might be and find themselves in these places of trauma and argument and struggle. Finding themselves saying the only thing that's harder to believe than, than leaving is staying. You see your children here who weren't given a choice. But someone walked out the door and said, I'm done. And they were left picking up the pieces. You see your children that tried their best and felt like it still wasn't enough. You see your children that ended up marrying someone who seems like years later like a completely different person. You see your children that have experienced unfaithfulness, both sides of it. You see the ones that made a choice and are heartbroken years later. You see the ones that made a choice and all trust is gone. You see us, your children, who are so easily broken, so easily hurt. You see the marriages that are struggling, the wrestling. You see the ones that are thinking about giving up, the ones who the word divorce has been thrown around for the first time. You see the children who didn't get a say in it. 
You see the children whose parents said, this is the end and are still struggling with the cost of that. You see the children whose parents stayed and yet they live in the midst of no peace, of arguments every single day. You see us and where we are. And for what is past, you bring grace. And for what is now and to come, you bring grace, but also hope. Hope that with you, the story might be different. So in this moment, would you wrap your children with those beautiful arms of yours and remind them whatever part of that story is theirs, that they are loved and that they are wanted, valued, cared for. For those that believe there is no story now to be written, remind them that you are always writing new stories. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.